Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Artist, musician, DJ, designer, label owner, and self-proclaimed digital hustler, all terms that apply to Eric Mast who's played an important role in the Portland DIY culture for more than 15 years, producing paintings, drawings, graphic design, psychedelic videos, posters, and electronic music under the moniker E-Rock. In 1996, he founded Audio Dregs Recordings, a record label and music collective with a focus on experimental music, often with electronic influences. He's the co-founder of Dream Street with artist Matthew Chambers, Founded in 2010, they create small handmade runs of prints on shirts. He's part of the Spoiler Room Collaborative, who produce a live-action internet DJ party. He's co-producer of the Free Spirit News, a Portland-based alternative zine. He's had recent solo shows called No Context, No Content, No Contest, and The Scenario of Work. He was part of the Wildfile Collective with Paper Rad, a video collective that made videos for Beck, Islands, The Gossip, and more. He's been an important voice, hand, and mind in the Portland scene for about two decades. I've always admired Eric for his ability to work across so many genres and stay true to his drive. I caught up with him fittingly over the internet from Portland, late night, to talk with him about his many projects, his storied past, and his future plans. And yes, you are listening to one of his tracks right now. All right, here's our conversation. So, um, how was your day? Uh, it was all right. I mean, I feel like I'm on weird schedules these days and just, yeah, running around. What's your, uh, what's your garden variety Monday like? <laughs> your typical Monday? I feel like Monday, usually I'll do like mail orders and uh, catch up on, on that stuff. Um, today I, I was just did a bunch of silk screening and everything and like grocery store and stuff like that. So it's nothing too exciting. I don't, I don't have, I don't have a lot of like, um, regular scheduled things in my life right now. Uh-huh. So it's kind of, it's, I'm always just kind of like flying by the, just kind of figuring out depending on like what's on my to-do list but in in general i um am kind of a, a late person like i i stay up late and i don't get up that early and then i like usually try to like do some reading and stuff in the morning before i like absorb all my caffeine <laughs> which i'm doing right now by the way um, oh, really? <laughs> just, you know to stay alert um I have the early wake up, you know, I get up at like six o'clock in the morning. Oh uh, yeah. So, um, I, at some point, I think when I was in grad school, my first year I would stay up really late and work, you know, I just like paint and paint and then kind of sleep in cause the first classes didn't start till later. But then, uh, I noticed like a drop in my productivity <laughs> and then, um, my second year I picked up the visiting artists from the train station whenever they would come. So I'd have to get up early. Mm-hmm. And I realized that all the the people in the program stayed up late 
and no one was up at like five o'clock in the morning. So it was actually like the perfect time to get a ton of work done. And ever since that switch between my first and second year, I've become a morning person. And like, as I get older, I can't like my bedtime gets earlier and earlier, sadly. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's, <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of like whatever works for you, you know? Yeah. I, I would try to get in like early schedules and it just, it, the longest it sticks is for like three days. And then, I mean, especially when I was doing more like DJing on a regular basis, then it's like, you know, you don't get home till like three thirty in the morning. Yeah. On just like a regular Friday night gig. So it's kind of like, it, it didn't really matter. I mean, my natural like biology, like wants me to like, stay up late so well, um, I, I, do I can't you, pull it off <laughs> yeah do you uh do you have an external studio or place where you're doing all your stuff or what's your what's your space situation with how you're working like when you wake up you're in your apartment i imagine are you do you have to leave are you doing work at home how does it work yeah i mean i i do work at home i I lived in the same house in Portland for 18 years and then I just bought a house the beginning of this year. So I moved in January. It's been kind of like a whole new process. Um, and so like I, I've always had sort of like a basement studio for like painting and screen printing. Mm -hmm. And then I've usually had sort of like a bedroom studio for like recording. And so, so yeah, I mean, I feel like, the last decade I haven't really had like a normal kind of job. And so I've kind of like always like worked from home and kind of, um, yeah, it's, so it's, it's been kind of like an insular setup that way. It's, I don't know. I, I think at this point I might, I might have to, I'm kind of like having to restructure some things financially. Um, so I might have to get a new job, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, pulled it off for a long time. That's, that's a, I mean, you've had a long tenure there. Like that place that you had before the one you had now, did you own that or were you just renting? I was just renting. Yeah. But I mean, Portland was a very like affordable place for a long time. So I kind of just tried to maximize that as much as possible as far yeah. as like, you know, just like figuring out how to live in like a sort of cheap, sustainable way so that I could actually like do the things that interested me like put my you know put my energy into whatever making music and art instead of like I don't know I mean I used to do corporate work and stuff too like design stuff but I've definitely gotten away with a lot you know for two decades worth of like um kind of doing living creatively in Portland, I guess. Right. And Portland was, you know, is a place that's kind of conducive to that. I imagine, I mean, is it getting, mm -hmm. but now, you know, I have so many friends who have friends or people that I know who are moving to Portland probably mm -hmm. because of that built up capital of it being, you know, friendly to creative people, a beautiful city. I mean, I've played shows there, I've been through there. It's a great place, but is it kind of, you know, is it getting figured out and is real estate climbing? Is it still conducive to that kind of, you know, uh, creative endeavors? Yeah, I mean, affordable, you know, it's, it's still very, it's still livable, but 
that sort of like people catching on to that idea and it getting like known as that there's been a huge influx of people in the last few years and like, yeah, all of the, the real estate has like, like doubled, you know, and part of the reason why it was a livable city is because it was the city, there was some sense of city planning on like most of the country. Yeah. So you could, you could get around on a, by bike and you know, stuff like that. Um, but now it's just like the traffic is just, not good and the, the real estate's expensive and that's one of the reasons you know things were just getting more expensive and i just kind of that's one of the reasons i ended up buying a place because i just felt like i was going to get pushed out if i didn't get like a firm foothold um yeah and you've invested a lot in that place you know as far as you know how much i just i mean i'm not being there but just knowing all the things that you've done mm -hmm. how much you've established kind of like a creative breeding ground there for all the things that you're doing and then you know getting pushed out and going somewhere else and starting something new would probably be kind of not difficult just like you're abandoning a lot of you know what you've created yeah i mean i don't know it maybe would have been good for me to move to but i just didn't i had kind of made attempts to move to new york or la and it didn't i couldn't quite figure out how what i what I would be doing there. <laughs> <laughs> Less, do you think? I mean, that's what's, you know, it's always the dilemma when I talk to students, you know, they think, well, am I going to move to New York and just, you know, really struggle to get by or just, mm -hmm. you know, work like crazy and squeeze in whatever time I can on my art? Or do I move to a smaller city and have a little more, you know, leeway, more space to work? Um, you know, have to work less, I can afford it more, but at the same time, maybe not quite the, you know, the supportive environment around that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's like, I think it's a big dilemma between, you know, moving to, you know, the big city, the biggest cities, like, you know, it's basically Chicago, LA and New York, which are considered to have somewhat of a market to support artists. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, places outside of that, it's a lot more difficult. So they say, yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, if you're going to move to New York, you should do it when you're fresh out of college and you're 20 oh, yeah. and you're hungry Definitely. and you have the energy to deal with it. Cause now I'm like 42 and I'm, or however old I am. And I'm like, I'm kind of like, I don't know if I want to do that. I was like, you know, I don't know. My knees will give out in a few years. <laughs> yeah. I don't, not Maybe not that extreme, but you know, like, just just the mental energy is different or i don't know i don't know if i would like want to start from scratch in new york at this stage in my life because it's i've also gotten i've also gotten you know a little bit spoiled because i've figured out how to get around town you know without spending a lot of money here or, or you know or like I don't know, but it's also changed a lot. Portland's a different city now than it was five years ago, even. So, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have, you know, like, I don't have fans of my music here anymore. You know, like I don't, the music scene's completely changed. Um, you know, once rents went up, like there, the number of bands went down, you know, like yeah. it's just kind of how things work in any city. So it's, you know, it's, it's just different. You got to like, you have to adapt no matter where you live and like figure out how to make it work.
Yeah, I mean, that's even happening in New York, you know, because, yeah. you know, I've been here, I don't know, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just seeing the amount of music venues, how they disappear, you know, and there's just not as many places. And it just seems like, um, you know, the, the landscape is changing. There's just a lot more. Everything's so expensive. And it's, yeah. really, it's really difficult to support yourself as someone who's trying to be, you know, creative in this in this town, you know what I mean? So I wonder if that's, you know, something that's not um, just limited to certain places, but it might be happening all over. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's also about perspective. I mean, it wasn't easy to be a musician when in 1980, when like suicide was performing, they're like, you know, making some of the best work of their career you know, but people have different expectations now. Like, you know, people expect to make a living off of music eventually or, you know, like, which is completely counterintuitive to, you know, like some of those early punk bands that influenced us or, you know, like why we, you know, most, most of our friends and us, we didn't get into music to someday make a career. Right. Until, wasn't until Nirvana broke that anyone thought that they could actually make money making music <laughs> you know yeah yeah so you know there's there's just like different there's completely different perspectives and you know there's the economy of creativity i mean i, I feel like there's like a whole there's a lot of different ways we could discuss that and you know and the, we've just in the times we made you know I've known you and we've made music. Like, oh, that's all oh, that's completely changed too, you know? Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because I think one way to talk about it would be one interesting way would be through the lens of audio drags, which is the record label you started and mm -hmm. you started it. What was it like 17 years ago? I'm guessing or 18 years ago. Yeah. Like probably like 90, probably like 98 or something. So almost 20 years ago. Yeah. So how much, has changed not just in you know the world or whatever but how much has changed in the way music is disseminated and like how it's how content is seen through the internet you know what i mean there's been <laughs> such a huge shift and th coming from someone who started a record label and has seen that shift and and sort of moved through it what like looking back at it now what's your perspective on that well, it's it's kind of crazy how much Steve Jobs has changed the landscape on yeah. that. I mean, the one one when I graduated college, I like two of the things I had was a hand-me-down Ford Taurus from my mom, which the odometer had been flipped. So, I used that <laughs> to drive from um, you know, upstate New York to Portland. And uh, it broke shortly thereafter. So not the best uh, long-term investment. <laughs> but then I also had like my family's like uh, Macintosh computer because mm -hmm. um, they had gotten a new one. So I inherited that old, that old computer too. <clears throat> and that was, uh, you know, around the time I moved out to Portland with my rock band and after like a year, you know, the rest of the members moved back to New York and uh, I, my kind of solo project kind of became more of a focus and my, my DJing and, and like this sort of uh, interest in like 
uh, electronic production and that, that sort of thing. And basically I was able to do that because I, I had figured out how to record on my computer and it kind of made my four track recorder obsolete. And, you know, the first time my brother came to visit me in Portland, we, we, we used my computer to master his um, recordings for this first seven inch I put out of his music. And he went back and got a computer because he was just like, oh, I, this is actually so much better. So like that sort of thing. And then when the laptop came, became sort of a consumer product, all of our friends that were making music were able to like take their, take them themselves on the road. And we would, you know, we'd do tours with like a, a sedan where three of us would tour in one car with like laptops basically. Um, and that was with like Yacht and Bobby Birdman and um, Brendan Fowler's bar. You know, we had a great time and that was completely because we were able to, I mean, we hadn't really, wouldn't have been able to tour with three acts. In, I mean, we probably could have done it if we had, one of us had a van or something, but it was just a different, it was a different way of looking at things. Yeah. So then that sort of energy that we were able to, um, I don't know, came out of that, like the technology definitely made it possible for us to do things that we hadn't been able to do. And that really helped out with the record label too. Cause I was, you know, I had an interest in design from when I was in undergraduate school and, and animation. And now I was, I was doing, okay. In, in Skidmore where I went to college, the, all the animation was done on these like $20,000, like Silicon graphics computers. Do I remember those? Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of like, like Toy Story one and like a soft image, like programs like that. Right. Like 3d rendering programs and stuff. Yeah. Totally 3d rendering stuff. It was all done in like, you know, like shell commands and stuff. Yeah. The most tedious stuff ever. But I mean, I was really interested in that and it was exciting to me. So I did that. But then, you know, when I left college, I threw my, my huge, notebook of command you know in the garbage because i was like there's no way i'm gonna have twenty thousand dollars to get one of these computers but then you know next thing came out and there was like flash animation and that was something we could make small enough like animations with font small enough file sizes that people could watch them on a dial-up modem and yeah. you know so like so much of what we were able to do came out of these apple products and then the, the record label was you know, when it was in its heyday, it was because we, we were selling CDs and I was able to um, work with artists and put out full albums and kind of help artists. For me, it was important to put out albums and kind of create something that would uh, help the artist out, like help them grow as artists and create like a, a full album was like a nice statement of intent almost and then it would help them get more notoriety and so the website really brought a lot of people to the label yeah and then apple switched the game again by saying well now we sell mp3s so then cds were done so the label had to completely like reconfigure itself and then now again like last year apple was like all right we don't really sell mp3s anymore we want everyone to stream everything all the time so that they can constantly pay us for the thing again 
So that again drops like the amount of money that you made as a label in half. Because basically going from CDs to MP3s, it was kind of like cutting your paycheck in half. Yeah. But also doing three times as much work. And then they did that again. And so now it's kind of like every time like it switched, they just found out, they figured out ways to kind of like, everyone's going to keep buying the phone and the equipment, but they're not going to let that money trickle down to the artists. They're, they've figured out ways of kind of collecting all that money. Right. So it's kind of like this weird, I don't know. We live in this weird in between time space where like Google knows how to like take everyone's information and give them free email, but they don't compensate, you know, people don't get compensated for their information. So it's this, it's really removed the middle class and like of record labels too. You know, it's kind of this overall way, this effect that's really affected a lot of all of society in a, in a way. I mean, that's, it's probably very much connected to the whole idea of why people are moving to Portland and New York out of, and, and rents, rents are going up, but it's harder to, you know, now you have to work four jobs instead of one, right. You know, like you have to diversify in a different way. And I don't, I think I'm, I'm, I think all of those things are connected. Um, it's, it's just, it's like a complicated system. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, how do you feel about the idea that, um, well, you know, there's always the, the two sides of that coin. The one is what exactly what you just said. And then the other is is that, well, the one nice thing is anyone can get their music out. Like anyone can kind of um, sort of share now. It's a lot easier. Whereas before you had to find the record label, you had to get the booking agent, all that stuff. I mean, is there any light on the other side of it to where, you know, it's easier to get content out? Um, yeah, it's easier to get content out, but it was, it wasn't hard before to get content out. The hard part was getting people to listen to it. And I feel like in a way it's even harder to get people to listen to your music at, for me as a music consumer, I like it. I don't like it as much. I mean, granted I can listen to anything for free anytime I want, Mm-hmm. but there was something nice. I liked the process of going to a record store and like talking to humans and getting actual ideas from people. And uh, the record label was a really strong filtering mechanism in terms of as a record label, I would get a demo every day of the week. And then at the end of the month, I would listen to them all and one in a hundred would be worthwhile. Yeah. And I would want to work with them. So I was doing a lot of work for other people um, and as like a record store employee, I was, uh, I knew what different people liked or someone would come in the record store. They'd be like, what's good right now? And I'd be like, well, what have you been listening to? And it, you know, it wasn't just for me to work as an algorithm to give them 85 bands that sound exactly like the flaming lips. Like, um, who, who cares? Like that's just the most boring radio station possible. Mm-hmm. Um, no offense, Pandora or whatever, but <laughs> But for me, the, the the cool thing, like the people that were going to the record store, they'd be like, oh, you're listening to this. Like, I want to like challenge you a little bit, give you the next step or whatever, you know, because right. you, you listen to one thing and it leads to another thing. And, you know, I wasn't ready for whatever extreme form of music right away. Like I went through a series 
a series of things before I got into it. You know, I was, you know, I, and I think that like, to me, that's interesting. That's an interesting way of like digesting music and like finding new ideas. And I, 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 I think art should challenge people and uh, expose us to new ideas. And, and, you know, that's, that's just my, my take on the, the role of the artist in society is as a, it's, I, I think we are, artists are the the pioneers and the researchers in the, you know, like the, it's important for, uh, for them to, to take different risks and try new things because it, it's, that actually helps all of society as a whole. So. Yeah. And it's ironic that the, um, that framework of kind of, let's take a musician, for example, they create that soundtrack to your life, right? They create music, which is so integral for most people, you know, but at the same time, no one wants to pay for it anymore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think historically artists. That, that has artists, a, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. But that has an inverse effect on the music too, because now everyone's worried about this, this new commodity of music. And so it's, it becomes more about instead of making music that challenges people, like I've, I've see, see now, like you want to make music that sounds nice because that'll put people in the club and the club, the rents have gone up. So the club's got to pay, you know, like Friday and Saturday are purely about making the money. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's kind of like really dumbed down the music scene in, in this way too, because um, no one, no one has the patience for, I don't know. It's, it's, you're just creating wallpaper at this point. You're, you're part of a system to sell absolute vodka yeah. to people on the weekend. And like, that's never what music was about for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it's funny. I was just watching a video about how this sort of same thing is happening with um, the print media with when it comes to news mm-hmm. and how, you know, like printed publications, they feel this pressure because all this digital content to just basically write things or, or they're getting squeezed out and then their digital version has to be clickbait and people have to just find, you know, whatever story is like funny or meaningless and not basically like the challenging things are getting squeezed out because everything has to be digestible and easy to sort of take in. Yeah. And um, I think that's, I, I think you'll agree. That's probably the exact opposite of what people who are artists want to do. Like mm-hmm. I was, I was kind of grew up as an artist to think that you're trying to question things and you're trying to, you Observe. know, make, make people think in a different way, which is the same thing. When you go into a record store, you dig through that vinyl, you try to find something different. There's the act of investigation that's rewarding. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's a, it's a challenge, but it's also the reward of it all. And if everything's curated for you, everything happens to you and you're not digging, people aren't digging for anything, then you kind of lose that integral part of what it is to sort of enjoy that stuff, you know? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how it will pan out, but um, it's uh, the other side of that too is with the video stuff stuff that you've done with animations and doing sort of graphics and, and zines and stuff like that. Um, well, I mean, what's it like to do something like free spirit news today? You know what I mean? When I think mm-hmm. you, you and I are the same generation, the same age almost. And, you know, zines had a big role 
in kind of exposing us to a counterculture or something different than what we were getting in mainstream stuff. I mean, how you're still doing that in a way. Um, what's mm-hmm. the motivation and what does that mean to be doing that? You know? Um, well, I, I feel like in a way people from our generation are the ones that advertise locally in free spirit news or read it. Um, and it, it's, you know, pe- people, um, I feel like it kind of we we have a taste for that, and part of that's just um, I don't know maybe because we are older we just have a sense that aesthetic appeals to us and we're more into a kind of slower burn in this in a way or like I don't know like I've kind of that's kind of when I was way I was talking about like how I always try to read in the morning now like. A lot of that's just like before I turn on any like devices, I like to be able to have this sort of free, like clear minded, like that's, that's when I like read a book um, yeah. or like it's given like all the clickbait stuff has kind of given me a taste for um, now I like to, I like appreciate the New Yorker. I want the 14 page article that goes deep on, on something because there's just so much, all, all of the quick flash, um, it's like so forgettable now and it's all so disposable and almost all of the m- culture and music that's being handed to me on those platforms, like I don't want to read a long article on Facebook. It doesn't, um, my desk just isn't comfortable for that either. But, you know, like, yeah. but like also like it's given me like a new appreciation appreciation for the long form and like the the deeper reads and so i i you know like i uh yeah I've, I've just kind of come to a new appreciation for that and like you know like now i'm i don't know like i just last last month i finished reading like infinite jest and i probably wouldn't have had the attention span for like a book of that length like 10 years ago yeah um, but now I'm like all about that. You know, like I like, I like, I want to go deep. <laughs> you right, know? right. Right. I want to see how far that someone, someone can take it or what, you know? Yeah. I wonder what happens to, because we have that before all this, um, the speed and all these kind of like clipping culture, you know, but mm-hmm. we've lived before then. I wonder what it's going to be like to grow up in that atmosphere and to be a creative person within, you know, like all this, the speed of everything and Instagram and sharing everything you're doing immediately afterwards, as opposed to, you know, waiting a month before that record comes out of the band that you really love and that waiting and what that does to you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I guess I've definitely, I've had friends who are whatever, like 20 years younger than me and you know, there's always like the weird kids who you're like, oh, that's who I would be hanging out with <laughs> right. if I was in, you know, I would have hung out with that kid when I was in high school too or whatever. You know, like there's, there's always, there's always people that, I feel like people who are artists usually can't help it, you know, yeah. they're kind of like, and some of them are just really good at navigating that stuff um, and then they get bored of it when they get a little bit older too. 
I don't know, like I've just, there's so many different cycles and like, in a lot of ways, I think it's interesting because it's just, it's just opened up a lot more. It's, there's more variety of paths you can take in a lot of ways. So I feel like that's, that's fine. It's just, that's just how things work. We just get, we just keep putting more and more people on this planet. There's just going to be more and more (laughs) varieties of types of people, you know? Yeah, definitely. And like, that's the one cool thing. I mean, it's kind of, it's definitely, it's also problematic that there's probably twice as many people on the planet as when we were born in terms of like sharing resources. Right. But in terms of like variety, variety of people is that part's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's a diversity, there's a comfortable, um, you know, people have a comfort with diversity, hopefully more and more as time goes on and understanding of different visual culture and sound. I mean, the one that we've talked about a lot of drawbacks to, let's say, you know, the digital um, implications of, of music and like what it does to music. But uh, one thing that is nice is like, now I can hear this music from all over the world that I would have been virtually impossible for me to encounter before, you know, before the internet. So there are some perks. (laughs) Yeah, totally. That's true. Um, Well, another thing I wanted to talk about too is your relationship to visual art, because I, you know, in doing a lot of videos and animation, um, and then I know that you do, you know, 2D work too, and you're doing a lot of screen printing, you're doing the stuff with Dream Street where you're, kind of mashing up a lot of art stuff with um, t-shirts and stuff that you wear. Um, when did you first, I mean, you did, went to school for animation? Um, I mean, I studied studio art. My, my undergraduate degree was in studio art. So I did a lot. I did print make, printmaking and painting and some in design. Um, and so, yeah, those are all still things that I, that I do. Um, in term, I'm still, I still do, I mean, I still make screen prints, like fine art prints, and I still do some oil painting. Um, so those are still like parts of my practice. And then uh, the Dream Street thing, it's kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different things, because it's that project was started with me and my friend, Matt Chambers, um, who lives in Los Angeles. And he's a, he's a painter also. And we became friends through trading zines and t-shirts and stuff. Um, and we, I think we both had that interest coming from high school of getting into like punk rock of that sort of cultural sharing of uh, ephemera of like the t-shirts and the zines and um, so at one point, yeah, we had done, I had quit painting for like don't doing oil painting for like five, six years or something. Cause I was trying to like focus on video or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was staying with him in Los Angeles and he had this unfinished painting in the studio and he said, you should, you should work on this painting. And then. So I kind of got, he kind of got me back into oil painting and then he ended up selling that painting. And so we used the money from that to buy a bunch of screen printing materials, just a bunch of blank shirts and ink. And so then, then we just kind of started dream street out of that. It was sort of like, 
I feel like it was kind of like I would have started a band with him if he was doing music just because we were like friends and this was like our way of communicating and like making just having fun and like part of the process was just there's also like humor was a big part of our relationship too so it was like you create something to just kind of try to make the other person laugh you know mm-hmm. so um to, to me like a lot of that sort of i mean that's what's always been interested to me in like youth culture where you have different scenes popping up around the world around the country it was just like different kids making stuff to like try to stoke their friends out you know they weren't trying to like sell millions of records they're just right. you know they were just making stuff for themselves and for their friends and so this, this was kind of came out of that and then it became sort of a self-aware you know as artists we kind of dream street is sort of like an art practice that doesn't produce art we just make t-shirts instead so it's it's a kind of self-defeating um business model but um but it's also a fun project that sort of is also a good exercise well i have a uh, i have a dream street t-shirt that i believe uh, the the sort of painting on it looks like some of the work from your no context no content no contest show oh yeah is that true it's kind of like the drippy washy works on paper yeah was it just it's just like brush strokes it's like yeah. abstract yeah I'm, i mean i made that at the same time and so i i can't remember which came first i think i had just done like some screen prints that i was just trying to do as uh artworks and then mm-hmm. i just decided to put one of them on a shirt instead of on a piece of paper right which in doing so you make it worth $300 less <laughs> so which is you know like but that's you know that's part of you know that's part of the awareness of the project too you know like you know Matt was making paintings that were selling for thousands of dollars but then he could also make these t-shirts that he doesn't make any money on <laughs> but all of his but all his his friends will be wearing them you know yeah i so think it doesn't that as an artist like it kind of makes it all seem in a way like it it just makes the fine art aspect of it seem kind of funny and then it kind of legitimizes everything in a way you know what i mean because like yeah. behind the scenes we know this is just what we do whether it's on a shirt or whether it's on canvas it's that image it's just you know the idea and it's kind of funny or interesting to get it out in a lot of different ways and it's also about thinking about your your audience too yeah i mean a big part of it for the t-shirts is the audience was more like our peers and like something that our peers could actually afford whereas like you know i couldn't even afford one of matt's paintings myself right but now I've got, you know, 200 of his t-shirts since we've, (laughs) (laughs) like since we started the project, I've kept like one of every t-shirt. So I have like a, I have a archive of every shirt that we've made under this umbrella, which it's completely probably worthless, but it's, uh, 
it's worth something to me because it's the process is interesting and it's fun. And I like the ideas that go into it. So, yeah. Well, I love that going to see that show that he had at uh, Zach Fuhrer and he had those gigantic handmade books, which are just the screen prints made into a book, I think. Oh yeah. And uh, seeing a couple of those um, and knowing that those are dream street t-shirts and they were probably just test prints or something to be folded into these books, but then seeing all the people, you know, flipping through the books, it was kind of an interesting flip of, you know, I'm guessing those, uh, that's the process that he had when he was doing those, you know, test prints on paper. Yeah. I mean, at some point I think the, the shirts almost are possibly test prints for the, for the prints. I mean, it doesn't, I don't think you, it really, it doesn't really, the book is the art. The t-shirt is the t-shirt. Yeah. It's, it's, it's completely like, it's just, it's just being, letting the thing be its thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, the images vary so much. Like that's part of the fun about, about the project is just like, just the process of recycling images around us and drawing things. And like the whole thing is, is, um, I mean, sometimes it's obvious you're like, oh, that's, you know, a dentist he's from like you know that's a redrawing of some you know advertisement from the yellow pages or you know like you kind of get that vibe but in other times it's just completely something drawn or some inside joke or i mean the whole thing just kind of becomes a, about the way we process images yeah you know and like what happens when they pass through this filter of us redrawing them and putting them on your chest and wearing it out and confusing people with this (laughs) (laughs) and stuff. I I just launched this, this other part of the project, the dream street project today, which I'm calling the Mersh project. And I made these like micro commercials. Mm -hmm. Um, And I put the first one on like, Instagram, it's like eight seconds long or whatever. Um, and they kind of get longer and more complex as it goes, but I'll eventually release like a hundred of them. And I've, I started making them for that show in New York that you saw, uh-huh. but it didn't, uh, it was just going to be like a video to play in, in the space. Cause it was kind of, the space was supposed to be sort of, retail space but it was also supposed to be our headquarters in hong kong and so it was kind of like i so it was definitely like making fun of our lack of commercial sensibility but also by pretending to be this extremely like important business or something so i started making these commercials and i didn't really release it get to release it how i wanted so i kind of like started re-editing it and so now i'm going to start putting out like this constant stream of like commercials and they're all i mean they're it's sort of a parody of commercials in general, but at the same time, they're real commercials. So it, it probably will be like the best advertisement for this project that we've ever had. Right. You know, depending on how good I am at keeping up on like hashtags or whatever. Right. Right. But I think it, I think it'll be really good because it'll definitely be like this sort of thing where 
if I can put one out almost every day or it's definitely becomes this like form of entertainment or like, you know, joining the Instagram channel. I'm pretty bored with Instagram and this, this sort of stuff. So this will be like just a stream of videos and like the new shirts. It kind of, I don't know. I want it to, I, I like it to be this entertaining thing for people. Yeah. That's like, the individual images can cause you to think and it's, it is this sort of expressive medium, but it kind of disguises itself as like this streetwear line. <laughs> so. Well, I don't think you have a hard time being prolific in that sense and keeping it going because you've got like so many different things going on. Oh, I already edited the first 80, 80 of them. Oh man. It took me like, I mean, it, it's taken me six months, but <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I'm probably only averaging like, you know, 10 a month at this point, but it's, you know, once I start putting them out, it'll seem like I've done a really good job. Right. <laughs> right. Cause no one will know that all, all the work that goes into it. That's kind of the other thing with dream street is like, I don't, you know, we've had like these different projects in the past and it, it's interesting. Like, I don't know, like something like Wildfile would just see different uh, like ad agencies rip off your ideas or this sort of thing. Like, I don't, I, I know that no one's going to ever rip off Dream Street because, you know, like the, the way we do things, because it just takes too much time and too much work. Right. And no one will come close to ever spending that amount of time just trying to do what we're doing, like make, like, like hand painting the screens and like, like, I, I feel very secure in that one because I'm like, no one's going to beat us at this game because it's like, it sucks. It's just way too much work. And there's no payoff. <laughs> I love it, right? It's, it's like the last bastion is just like taking a lot of time to make something. It like can't be beat. That's why whenever, I don't know if you, you know, if you're online and you see, I feel like when I see these videos where they're clearly like it's an animation or some sort of something done with paper or it's time lapse or anything that shows the hand over time is immediately compelling because yeah. you just know there's time invested in that, you know? Well, yeah, it changes the way you, it changes the work too. Because if, if you're spending a long time making something, it's going to come out co completely different, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of, that's kind of what I liked about when I got back into oil painting is when I, when I quit, I was frustrated because I was trying to make something, you know, I, I would start a painting with an idea in my head and then when Matt got me back into it, he's like, don't, he's like, don't worry about it. Just push the paint around until something cool happens. And there's like this certain like freedom that comes with that where it's, if you spend a lot of time and you just keep experimenting and working with something like you don't even have to be good at it. Like something you'll accidentally make something good eventually. And like, that's going to be more surprising and interesting than the initial idea that I had put into it because I was like, I realized I just wasn't good at coming up with good ideas for paintings and it came out better if, if I didn't have any ideas. <laughs> oh, what a, one of my favorite uh, group of images is from that scenario of work. And are they oil paintings? They're like black and white and they're like marks that you made, I think. And then they just add up and get more dense over the series of paintings. Oh yeah. 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 That was, that was, um, they, I mean, I was kind of, that was supposed to be almost like a, like, uh, what's the word? Like exercises, like tests, 
Like those are actually, um, I could just pull canvas over old wooden silk screen frames. Mm-hmm. So they were all the same size from that. And then I was just was like painting them to try to like work on my mark making. And then I was trying to paint more like drawing, I guess was the idea. Yeah. And then it kind of became, so I would try different things and then almost as a series to me, it kind of turned into sort of like a, it became almost sort of like abstract narrative, like a abstract comic or something like each one was like a, fr- a frame. So I was kind of like, Oh, these are more interesting than the actually like the whole, the whole show, there was like some big paintings, oil paintings, and they're like the least interesting thing on the show. And then all the other stuff was just, was mostly like, um, so supposed to be like practice for the, the paintings. Mm-hmm. So those were like studies. And then like the photos were like studies for compositions and stuff. And then the paintings were just like these, like, you know, big six foot paintings and they were not that interesting. And so <laughs> kind of like the show, I just put all the stuff that I had been working on, but like all of the studies ended up being way more interesting than the, what I was trying to like work up to, I guess. Wait, were the, uh, the outlet paintings, were they part, were they the studies or were those just like, are you lumping those in with the studies or the bigger paintings? I don't know about those. I guess they're, (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what those are, but yeah, actually maybe those were the best things in the show. (laughs) No, I love the, uh, the mark making ones because the one cool thing about those too is that they're, it's, it's about drawing or it's about mark making, but over it's, it's kind of like animation in a way. Like it's this time-based narrative over the course of like a few images, you know, and, oh, yeah, totally. and the hand is in there, you know, mm-hmm. it, seeing those next to like funny or, you know, images that are supposed to be a little more tongue in cheek and funny, they come off as super earnest, you know, because there's nothing else to them except for those marks. Oh yeah. That makes sense. I mean, the funny thing too is like, now that you mentioned that too, like those, if I had been making in 2002, I would have been making those as flash animations. Yeah. Like they're not that different than like in, in that term, in that sense, it's just kind of like, I was just using a different medium. <laughs> yeah. They would have literally been flash animations like 10 years ago or something. Right. Cause those mark making, or it's not mark making, but in those early audio drags animations, there were a lot of those like movement like that, those little, dashes that you were making those gestures and they would fly all over the place you know oh yeah totally. with like colors going crazy that's the other thing it's cool to see it in black and white or like monochrome too because knowing a lot of your stuff is so there's so much color and in that show it was it was i think the only things that i saw that were color in it were photos right yeah yeah i pretty much stopped using color like five or six years ago um, and like, that was definitely a thing in the early animations is you could digitally, I was like, Oh, I can use like as many colors as I want. So you throw all of the colors on there and it was younger, but it, it also, I think came out of me being colorblind. So like, there's like sort of, I see certain colors like less saturated than people. So I would mm-hmm. just amp the colors up a bunch. And so that way we would, we were on the same page. Right. Um, but then I just kind of decided that color wasn't my strong point. And so I stopped using color kind of around the same time we started doing dream street. 
the one of the first shirts I made was the yellow. And I was just, I was like, I don't, I don't wear yellow t-shirts. And so I just thought if I stopped using color, I would just focus on content because I couldn't try to make things pretty. Right. So it was, it was just kind of like a different way of thinking. And around that time I stopped wearing color too. Like I, you know, started wearing just all black and white, maybe like six, six or so years ago. So it kind of like, I kind of just switched my way of thinking in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, now I, I kind of just like stick to black and white and, you know, came out of wanting to focus on content and also just realizing that people didn't see colors the same way as me. So <laughs> <laughs> now they're definitely seeing what you're seeing. Exactly. Like there's, no, there's no mystery if you do black and white. Right. Uh, well, the, the the flip too to those um, in thinking about the uh, the little clips that you're starting to make for Dream Street. Mm-hmm. I really love the spoiler room stuff because the idea, and you know, I'm imagining that's kind of like not tongue in cheek, but that's kind of a response to like these boiler room sets of like you know long DJ sets. But uh, I love that long term repetitive kind of video content with the music. And I'll listen to that stuff in the studio just as kind of music as I'm working. Um, how oh, did you, yeah. how'd you come up with the idea for that? Um, well, that's cool. Cause that's, I kind of picture it as being like a podcast that, you don't that has video. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like my, my buddy Dane that I shoot that with Dane Overton, he lives in this like one room apartment that has sort of like a little balcony And so he, he would just sort of have these, we would always just end up hanging out at his place and like put a boom box on the windowsill and someone would like DJ. And then he like would hook up a a mic and we would just like kind of harass people on the street while, so it was just these sort of like partying in his space. He's also like a video guy and him and I have worked on like different, I met him from when I used to do like DJ sets and, um, he used to do V he used to VJ at this club. I would DJ at and stuff. And, um, and then last year we also ended up taking the classes at, at the, uh, local like cable access place and started like shooting stuff there. And then we ended up just started getting those, all of our camera equipment and setting it up in his place and just kind of like having these like, micro parties and inviting people to DJ for like an hour and then recording it all in real time with just way too many cameras. (laughs) And part of that idea is it's just fun, but you know, also like the whole, the boiler room thing, the idea is ridiculous. So like, let's make it even more ridiculous. So there's just like, you know, four of his skate buddies sitting on the couch smoking weed and the guy from across the hall, like MCing and like, like we, we, I bought like a $10 like backup cam for a car and mounted it under the turntables. So like we've got a crate cam and people are looking through records. We can like jump to a camera that just like wide angle camera on the like crates, you know, (laughs) it's, it's like totally ridiculous, but then it's also like, it's also like no one's really doing that in, in town. And I think it's interesting. So like, why not? Like, like, uh, when I get like different DJs in town and have a, a, you know, like 
have them do a set that's sort of archived on this on this place and and also there's usually someone on the on the, the balcony like you know one of our friends will be just like on the balcony like filming people on the street and then we'll, like, that'll be in the mix and yeah to me it's kind of like our like sort of portland's version of tv party right now or something you know it's, yeah it's like a I don't know. It's fun. There's a nostalgia, <laughs> yeah. There's a nostalgia to it that you know. I think not to keep bringing up our generation, but remember the old skate videos we used to do. Oh yeah, like all handheld and just crappy, and the date was always on the the video, and yeah, you know, it would be just like you hanging out with your friends, like, and no one would ever see that because it was never you could never post it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But that it it has that feel to it. But the best thing about those long DJ sets is if it's someone like Boiler Room or whatever, if it's someone you really like, you're just interested in what they want to play. You know, like yeah. you, you want to hear the music that they're into. And I think that's what's, you know, and I kind of love, I want to ask you about it, but I don't want to ask you about it. But I'm curious as to how much of the music that you're playing on that is stuff that you love, how much of it is funny or like tongue in cheek or you know what's the the recipe or ratio on that um it it really depends on the dj um i did i did a set that hasn't been we didn't we haven't posted any of my dj sets yet but i was doing like straight idm vinyl sets of all like kind of like schematic like you know like early 2000s like like Phoenicia type, you know, like just warp records, like just real, like yeah, dry IDM sets. <clears throat> All techer. Uh, yeah, totally. And it was just the real floaty, like hard beat stuff. And, you know, like that was, it's like definitely stuff I'm interested in. And like, I don't think I've heard anyone play any of that stuff in 15 years. It's weird, right? <laughs> it just went away. Like there, yeah. it, and it's weird to live through it and just be waiting for it to come back where people are like, there was this band boards of Canada and it was crazy. <laughs> you know, like it's going to be weird when that catches back on. But like you said, no one's really playing it or into it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff, a lot of the stuff I realized when I started playing it, I pulled, pulled out a lot of my records and, and a lot of it was cause I just, it sounded fresh again and it, it still sounded modern. Um, and a lot of the stuff just isn't on the streaming sites either because it was like 12, it was, it was, a, it was a more DIY culture. So it was just like a weird, you know, a weird 12 inch from a band from the Netherlands and, you know, isn't, isn't on any of the streaming sites, you know? Yeah. yeah. So like, that's part of the reason I, I pulled that stuff out. And then I was just like, Oh, I can do a whole, you know, I, I, DJ'd some like bars in town a couple of times and I was just like, Oh, I can do like a three hour set of this stuff and not run out of it, you know, like, and keep myself interested. So, um, so yeah, I mean, like, like for the most part, if people are actually DJing vinyl, it's probably stuff they're really into because they bothered to keep it on record. Yeah. I mean, there was one, our one friend, Arian, he, did like a laptop set and I think he's into a lot of the stuff, but his was probably a little more jokey than like some of the other ones, but also like people tend to use fake DJ names when we, when they play it at that, like we did, we shot one, uh, what is today? Monday. We shot one like two nights ago with a guy from New York who goes by stress 
and he uh he was in town playing some shows just sort of like solo electronic dude and he came and did a set under and he just made up a a new dj name for this (laughs) (laughs) so i was like yeah that's fun you know like whatever like his set was cool you know just a little more like techno style so how often do you do those well it kind of just depends on like if if dane has to work that day or whatever (laughs) (laughs) so it's like i mean he's like me doesn't have like a normal job right now but then he'll be doing like freelance stuff and so like we always try to shoot it when the sun's going down because, you know, we can get the best light. Yeah. And we can kind of do it outside. So we're like, try to, we always try to work around the weather. We're like, hopefully it's not raining. Um, but, and then like our, our, our friend, Sean, who DJed the first one, he's, he started doing a thing where he'll like cook, cook something while it's going on. Mm-hmm. So like one episode, he made deviled eggs and one episode he made spaghetti this, uh, the other day when we did it, he made crepes and stuff. So it's kind of fun. It gives like another thing to shoot while we're sh- shooting. It's just like, also to me, it's sort of like a reference to that sort of that Chicago cable access show of the like, let's paint and exercise. I've never seen it. Oh, uh, really? It was just, it was just kind of like one of those things. I mean, I feel like people from Chicago know about it. Like I, I I'd probably seen it early youtube days and otherwise i'd had some like bootleg dvds or but yeah it's like some guy who would like run on a treadmill while trying to like paint uh oh no he would cook while he was doing it too so he'd like make a smoothie while trying to paint a still life and running on a treadmill you know just like impossible tasks (laughs) and he would do this like every week and it's like it's kind of genius it's like it's like i mean it's arguably unwatchable but it's also like it's also like performance art like he's creating this scenario that's just like an impossible scenario that that's like also trying to entertain you which is also impossible this and then it's shot with like too many effects on like you know with three cameras in a studio and cable access television <laughs> looks like i'll be staying up a little later than i normally would tonight <laughs> yeah i mean it's one of those ones you probably only need to watch like five minutes of it but you get the gist of it it's pretty it's pretty amazing too it might be a good you know like podcast style thing too like keep it open in your extra monitor when you're working on your computer right it's a little eye candy on the side yeah well, uh, what's your, who are your favorite artists? Like who, what are you looking at visually besides, you know, stuff on screens, you know, are you going out to see stuff or you, or who historically have been people have been a big inspiration to you? Oh man. Um, I haven't thought about that in a while. I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff. I feel like it'd be easier if I had all my, my books, I could just be like, looking at art books and being like, Oh, I like that guy. Um, that's tough. I mean, I feel like I Yamataka from the boredoms has was been one of like my biggest influences mm-hmm. in terms of his sort of like, he kind of crosses, he crosses genres and medias and also like refused to like fit in anywhere. 
and his stuff is just so satisfying to look at. Um, I don't know in terms of, I mean, there's definitely been certain friends who were like huge influences um, in terms of like painting and so on. Um, like Matt Chambers that I like work with all the time is definitely like one of the biggest influences. Um, a lot of it has been that sort of thing of like, yeah, like different, different people that I work with. It's been sort of like, oh, I like this person's work a lot. I'm inspired. So then you like, you work with them and then you try to like, it's that thing if you try to like, um, just get each other stoked on whatever you're making. Yeah. Do you still uh, keep in touch with people like Mumble Boy and uh, Paper Rad, Corey Archangel, all those guys that, you know, that, that kind of animation that was going on back in the day when we were coming up, we were all into? A little bit, but very, I mean, I, I barely talk to them. Everyone's, you know, it's like life gets in the way. <laughs> yeah, it does. Everyone, when everyone gets older, like it gets, it gets harder. Um, I mean, I, I never know. I was, I mean, I would go down to Los Angeles a lot for the last several years. And so I would, um, I felt like that was a good time because I would stay with Matt and I would just like hang out with him in the studio every day. Yeah. And I would see like my, uh, my buddy Rob who does Bobby Birdman and we would like work on tracks and I'd hang out with my sister and, um, my sister's an artist too. She does all like performance stuff. Yeah, her stuff is really amazing. I had no idea that she was, you know, of what she did until fairly recently. Yeah, she keeps getting like more and more recognition. She just did like a big show in Toronto. And yeah, she does really interesting, interesting stuff. I mean, feel we've, um, yeah. Yeah, and with your, with your brother being a musician too, I mean, what was... What was growing up like? How did you guys all become so, you know, involved in the creative endeavors, you know? Um, I think it's a combination of, we had very supportive parents. We were all in like Montessori school when mm -hmm. we were real young. I mean, I was only in Montessori until like first grade, but that uh, was like three years or something. And I feel like that was actually a really good starting point because it was kind of like before you get shut down by like institutionalized school. They kind of like, uh, like when you're in Montessori, like they let you like make decisions for yourself of like what you want to do, mm -hmm. what you want to wear. They, um, and I think that was getting that ingrained in you before you get put in these sort of institutions, I think was probably one of the most important aspects of it. Mm -hmm. It's like when I first got to public school in first grade and I had to fill out forms and tests and stuff like I didn't under, I thought that I got in trouble. I got sent to the principal the first day of school because I uh, didn't do my work because I, I didn't know that it wasn't optional because <laughs> <laughs> I had been in a school where you got to work on whatever you wanted to work. So I, Traditionally, when I was like, you know, when I was like four or whatever, I'd be in school. I tried everything once and then I would just go back and like draw the whole day. Yeah. 
I did like every activity and then I realized that the best one was drawing. So I would just do that. <laughs> and then I got to like public school and they're like, no, you have to do stuff that you don't like. <laughs> Which is probably a bummer. Yeah. And so then I guess you f- spend the rest of your life like fighting that. Yeah. But you won because you're doing the Montessori thing. Now you do what you want to do. Yeah. I, I guess. I've, yeah. I've been invested a lot of time and effort into figuring out how to like not, not, not do that stuff. A noble quest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. my, my brother was even better at it. Cause he figured out how to like, when he, I talked to him into moving to Portland and we put out his first record and he said like, I'm going to figure out how to make music my job. Um, Cause I was still working other jobs and making music and I, you know, I wasn't really making money making music. And he was like, I'm going to make music my job. And he actually did it. And he was just like, he just had to become a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Well, I couldn't, I didn't quite pull that pull that one off but you know i still had to do lots of corporate work on the side and whatnot but but at this point he's probably i would imagine dedicating most of his time to his band right yeah he still does a lot of solo stuff but he's the kind of guy that when he's not on tour he's he comes back from tour and within two days he's in the studio every day yeah like he's I think with a lot of kids, they think when you reach a certain point, that's when you made it. And then you can just, you got an easy pass or something. Right. And he's, he's always kept that. I feel like if you look, that's not like a real thing. Like even like Prince or somebody like the reason why they, people, they kept making stuff is because they, they enjoy working and like they have a really strong work ethic. Yeah. And I feel like that's, I don't know, that's kind of where you got to get. You got to get to a point where you actually enjoy the work. So that way you always, you're going to work hard all the time. Because you love doing it, you know? Because you don't, yeah. If you work hard all the time and you hate it, then you just want to kill yourself after a while. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I totally agree. I mean, you know, that was the thing the expression like if you love what you do you never work a day in your life is true you know yeah i mean you might have to work that other crappy job to pay the bills or whatever but at least you're able to do what you love to do whenever you're doing it you know and i think that's hard and not everyone can do it i mean i haven't 100% gotten there like i've still always had to do commercial work or whatever like here and there i mean less and less but partially just cuz i've getting offered less and less jobs the <laughs> for whatever reason <laughs> but i don't know i mean i mean i guess that's also that thing about like being an artist like at least an artist gets to do you know like not we still need like dental assistance in society right and there's probably not every dental assistant loves their job but they're still doing something important and they're still helping people. So maybe they do like their job maybe because they like helping people or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? I don't, I don't know what society's up to, but we'll just worry about ourselves. Right. (laughs) Yeah. As long as we can get through the week then we're doing all right. Right. Well, normally I would ask, 
you know, before letting you go, I, I ask people like what they have coming up. I feel like you've probably got another hour's worth of things coming up to talk about, but is there anything besides the, um, you know, the dream street stuff that you're just releasing? Is there anything else that you've got coming up that you'd want to share? No, I don't have anything coming up. It's like, the merch project for the dream street, the, this, this video thing is like the only thing I have trickling out right now. Like my studio is like completely like disassembled. So I've like barely been making any music. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, everything else I feel like I've been doing it, but like I've kind of funneled as much um, funneled my drawings and my video and my audio into like making these tiny commercials <laughs> it's like totally retarded like it's not the, it's probably not a good move but it'll be fun mm -hmm. i think it'll be i think you'll be entertained yeah that sounds good you and five of my other friends are gonna <laughs> <love>. <laughs> well, i'm glad i'm glad that <laughs> that i'll be part of that <laughs> It's cool that I've known you for so long, even though I like haven't seen you in forever. But well, you know, life it's, it's, as it's you actually, older, like you're yeah. saying, life catches up with you. <laughs> but it's good to talk to people too. Then when I don't know when you get older too, like having seen like these arcs of like different people, like different friends, like working, you know, like I don't know. It's it's fun talking to someone that has like a similar like big picture view of things, you know. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, part of the reason I love talking to all these friends and people, you know, at different stages is like just understanding over time. It's not just a short term thing. It's, it's kind of, you know, maybe your work when it gets out there, it gets out in spurts or people see a show or they hear a record and then it goes away for a few years, whatever, but we're all here still doing what we're doing. You know what I mean? We're still living it every day. So it's really it's nice when a certain amount of time goes, goes by the one nice thing about getting older is like reflecting on it or understanding these cycles and changes and embracing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And uh, I think early on, you don't even know that yet. You're just kind of, it's like someone tossed you into the pool and you're just trying to stay afloat, you know? Yeah. And you look around and you go like, Oh, things are like this and this and this. And then five years go by and you realize, Oh wait, things are always changing. Like yeah. they, they were like that five years ago, but no, they're not like that now. <laughs> yeah. So you get back out and then you do a cannonball back in this time. Yeah. <laughs> you make a bigger splash and you enjoy it. You know, like it's kind of like you've, you have a new perspective. Yeah, that's true. Well, thanks a lot for a being my first, you know, uh, podcast from different sides of the country, which is great and um, be taking all this time to, to talk to me and to uh, hopefully, you know, people will be able to dig into some of the stuff that you've been doing and, and they can get to all that on your website, right? E-rock.com, I think it is. Yeah, I tried to make that like a portal for different projects. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, man. It was great talking to you and catching up. Yeah, great talking to you too. Cool.